Hi there and welcome back to another episode of the Desi VC podcast. This is your host Akash Bhatt and every week I speak to investors and operators investing and building companies in the diverse tech landscape of India. Today on the 81st episode we have RK Rangan. RK is the chairman of Blink Investment. RK is a seasoned business leader with over 30 years of experience in the financial services industry across investment banking, asset management, insurance and consumer banking. He is a specialist at strategic development and transformation of businesses and has always held either C-level executive positions or has been the president and managing director with global institutions such as Nomura, American Express and AXA. Today on the podcast Rangan and I sit down and have a conversation about what it takes to be an investment manager today in India and the challenges of implementing a fund's thesis. So without further ado, let's head into the episode and have a conversation with Rangan and uncover insights that he has had as a fund manager. Well, RK, welcome to the DCVC podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to host you here today on the show. Before we get started and talk about everything that's Indian VC and in, and and talk about the financial climate, I'd like to first ask you, how are you doing? Uh, great. Uh, thanks, Akash, for having me on the art show. It's getting very, very popular. And congratulations, you've done seventy-five episode. I gather uh, already, which is uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's a uh, it's been busy time but uh, obviously it is also a interesting time in um, in the vc world uh, given what so i'm sure in our conversation we'll talk about so i'm doing fine how are you doing well i'm doing good but more importantly for me i it's been it's been interesting to observe what's happening on the other side of the globe sitting here in the united states but what i've really taken a liking towards is how how much of the impact that the macroeconomic climate here in the united states has not had on the indian vc industry and the more people that i speak to they talk to me about the positive side of what's going on right now while the recession here in the united states in this part of the world has been definitely um, affecting investments in the vc space not a lot of that has really gone down and hit the asian markets do you think you know that kind of su- summary is is fair or do you have a different perspective to what what's happening in the country on ground yeah akash i share that sentiment let me give you some uh, color of uh, how i see the market you know asia is a market specifically if i have to talk about india lot of uh, capital has been raised you know by these um, Uh, funds uh, uh, you know the statistics are absolutely staggering you know you you know it I, if i remember the number 21 india raised uh, close to 40 billion dollars now um, so there is a deployment cycle which takes a long time whether you are a early stage or later b or c everything takes time so they are all sitting on a lot of dry powder right, right. so as a, a vc fund there's always a pressure to deploy right uh, and uh, they are sitting on a uh, lot of dry uh, powder at this point in time the trend which i see though is um, the capital uh, the flows which we saw that has tightened in a way it's not dried up but it is going to the the right places with bit more rigor the other pattern which i am uh, figuring out in the last 3 4 months is still for early stages uh, you know the, the there's competition for vc to deploy you know it's more still founders choice versus vc forcing in with their capital i do see the b and c the later uh, uh, investing funds the, the capital folds are really tightening out there because the ticket size are big uh the the scrutiny is uh larger and with the macroeconomic factors the industry they themselves are their portfolio companies or the investing areas uh, they are also impacted so i feel early stage uh companies uh, still there's a very regular flow you know it continues to be uh the promoter's choice to take capital from where but then the yeah. 
slightly bit more matured businesses uh, where they are a bit more advanced. I see uh, the capital deployment has become a bit more cautious, um, but it's still early stages how the, how the whole thing pans out. So, you know, these are the two quick trends I'm seeing in the last uh, three, four months as a macro being a backdrop on, and which is driven by totally inflation. Uh, right. uh, you know, there are various factors to trigger that off, but the inflation is really, really putting pressure in the global system. And yeah. as yet, we are not seeing the full impact on India at this point in time. That's very interesting because you've obviously been through two bust cycles like this. You've seen the 2000, um, you know, boom and the bust. And you've obviously been through the 08 financial crisis and the impact that it's had on the larger um, ecosystem not just VC as such. How are you looking at this? You know, because when we looked at 2008, it took a while before the market really settled down and things to pick up, but we did see a number of companies come out of that period, which have really been the success stories about that, that those couple of dark um, years. We haven't really obviously seen anything that's really been a flag bearer for what's happening right now. We'll only see that maybe five, six, 10 years from now. But if you were to compare the two or maybe the, even the three going all the way back 22 years, how would you put this into perspective with the last two recessions that we've seen? Yeah, so clearly the reasons for the triggers for the downturn is very different, even if I have to take pandemic as recent as a couple of years ago, right? Which is yeah. a natural calamity versus uh, financial expert induced like um, the Lehman crisis, right? Yeah. Now, uh, so let, let me uh, start with a couple of factors uh, which stands out uh, when a downturn starts happening. Now, if you look at the credit crisis or the Lehman crisis 2008, you know, we know all the issues, what are the underlying uh, issues are, but the regulation plays a very, very uh, critical sentiment. You know, you know how the Fed's tighten themselves, the credit norms when, because that changes the landscape of the, the business itself. That, that like any tightening or any challenge will put out an opportunity as well. So a lot right. of people tightened and um, the quick learners did come back, but a very differentiated approach to uh, credit, right? Now, if I look at 2008, then the uh, your uh, capital easing started, the QE started, um, all that and new products started to come in. So the, the point I want to make is regulation, like a crisis, like a downturn, the regulation plays a very, very critical role, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at um, uh, pandemic as a, a situation, the businesses absolutely, they went into a pause, but as they could understand the terrain, they quickly came back and some of them went first, but most of them bounced back bigger than before. Right now, the current situation, if I have to uh, overlay, I, I, I think um, is the wisdom of experience of what we have seen in the last two or three cycle. People are a bit more cautious and thoughtful. And, um, and in this particular case, everyone knows what the triggers are very clearly. The inflationary impact is, is creating pressure on the global economy. People are waiting when the liquidity is going to dry up or people are waiting and watching what the risk appetites are, but the new products which we at least see in India, which are launched to the Bharats of India, which I will, I'm sure, have an opportunity to talk to you through this conversation, uh, you know, it's insulated to all these issues, right? Yeah. So because the spectrum, they, the, the opportunities are on the other end of the spectrum, as long as there are investors to back that, those ideas will uh, continue to come. So in, uh, in short, uh, Akash, if you are in the core fundamentals of business building, you will hear me say this number of times in our conversation, which is focus on um, the real building of business, mm -hmm. by passion, and you focus on revenues, you focus on cash flows and liquidity, you focus on profitability, you know, it is likely those enter enterprise will sail through any event. So 
once you start going out of the framework to leverage yourself or yeah. take bets uh, beyond the science of finance, you will always have this to say like, you know, you're betting like a casino. Mm. That's what I would say. But as long as you remain with the framework of building a business, there will be challenges. Obviously, the inflationary impact, everyone is raising interest rates. It's going to put pressure on your original assumptions on business model. Mm -hmm. But there will always be uh, a safety valve to what they call the to pivot or you steer through. Yes, your business will go down, but you will most likely come up yeah. in the situation. So it's very hard to predict that the current situation, what's happening, if we have to relate to the last 10, 20 years, how long it's going to last. You know, the, the Ukraine thing is happening in the background, but it's yeah. sort of quietened. But the inflationary effects is globally. Currency pressures are there. Uh, oil is swinging. So no one knows how long is it. But I would think the business leaders have learn the hard way to be more measured and balanced, right? Mm -hmm. If you have to make great businesses, you have to take risks. Without mm -hmm. taking risks, you can't build great businesses. But having said that, very thoughtful to operate within the framework of fundamentals of building a core uh, business. So uh, going back to your question, Akash, the current situation is no comparison to what we went through uh, the Lehman uh, crisis mm -hmm. or the start of the pandemic when it happened. Right. But this has a very, very different pressure on the pricing of products and services, and it will influence the customer behavior. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I'm seeing that in India and in European markets, and you are very closer to where you are, is yeah. uh, you know how it pans out we see. So we don't have an answer what next or how long but people are moving in a very, very measured manner. And even in India, the RBI, the way they move, um, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's going back to fundamental of economics, right? right? So they haven't done anything very uh, path breaking. They haven't brought any new regulation. Yes, all FinTechs are watching RBI. They do tweak over a period of time as they learn on new product development, like, uh, you know, buy now, pay later is, uh, is a great example where RBI will tighten soon because the how the market behaves based on customer behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, some really interesting points that you make here, and I want to double down on two things that you mentioned. One is consumer behavior domestically and how businesses that are building from India for the globe are also impacted. So when we are talking about, say, the impact of inflation or impact of the macroeconomic climate here in the West that has um, obviously a global uh, implication. How are you looking at it when it comes to an investment point of view, when you're looking at local consumer behavior domestic to India, when you are making these investments? Because, you know, you invest in fintech and you invest in edtech. I probably should have asked you why these two sectors, but I think it's a very obvious and evident answer for everybody who is kind of plugged into the Indian environment to understand why these two sectors really, at, at least at this point of time, have a massive potential to really disrupt both India's presence and India's dominance over global markets while building fintech slash edtech companies for the world. Now, when you are thinking about that and you're putting you know, money into some of these companies, how does consumer behavior domestically impact then some of the investments that you have, which perhaps will also look at external international markets? Great question, Agash, a wide question. Let me take it one by one. So to begin with, let, let me give our funds um, uh, thesis or philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, my partner, uh, Amit, who is the founder of this fund, um, you know, uh, has both financial services, but more early stage uh, education. He was part of the, the Kaizen uh, fund. And I, uh, before I left my corporate uh, life with Namura, I, I, I was extensively involved in looking at fintech opportunity for Namura globally sourcing out of uh, India. So our natural fit was looking at the landscape based on our research said these two sectors are very point. There's a huge opportunity, not only in India, but opportunity to take the business model globally. So it was a very natural fit, but what forced us to just contain to these two sectors 
and the size of the fund is clearly when we conceptualized to apply our licenses, COVID happened. So we didn't know where the risk appetite or uh, the liquidity is going to go away. So we thought, let's do this, our first regulated fund. Let's start small, very focused, surgical focus, make it a success as the deployment happens, we can think about more diversified and a larger fund. Coming to the thesis, uh, like we have a sectoral focus. Uh, we always look at opportunities which are germinated in India, tested in India, scaled in India, but has a potential to go globally, essentially with market like Middle East and rest of Asia. And FinTech is a great example, starting from payment to micro lending to uh, micro wealth management to micro insurance uh, distribution. Uh, the applicability is much wider than uh, India. So that's first. Obviously, the very natural piece to scale up, it has to be technology has to be the core. You know, you can take an NBFC, which is conventional, doing extremely well, lending money, you know, all that. But if technology is not driving the business in a way, influencing, that's not our area of uh, interest. Uh, the third is very fundamental to our approach is what I call is a co-founder approach. Yes, all VCs have to support the portfolio companies in some form or the other. They call it a platform. Um, someone will say that, um, you know, we, uh, we support the horizontals, all that. So, you know, our fundamentals of uh, investing is having a small fund and focused sectors that we will invest where there's an opportunity for us to get engaged and we can add value. You know, having a board seat is not everything, but you need to have the, the mindset to get engaged, right? So we build capacity within our small fund, how we gonna help the, the promoter. So in our portfolio, you know, on, uh, on our website, we have demonstrated as to how we help these companies. So we call it a co-founder approach, but we are very balanced and careful because what the, 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 the promoters or the founders bring to the table is the idea, the freshness, the creativity. Now we being experienced, we don't want to overlay us and kill the creativity. So we are extremely careful there that we want to guide, mentor, nudge, and sometimes get in when it's going absolutely here, but we want to be just on the support circle versus getting your hands into the operating level. And we are very, very careful um, uh, about that. Now, uh, the, the other fundamental thing is we want to uh, ensure, while we are an early stage uh, investors, uh, we, I would call it more we are pre-series A, where we want to see some revenues on the board, uh, customer diversity, um, you know, revenue flowing through. Uh, before we take a call and invest in. Obviously, this is our framework, but there is a great idea, great founder. We see that the revenues are not on the board. We will look at it, but we go with the play that you know we need to do because uh, it's a it's a high risk asset class. Within that early stage is more intuitive, you know, and that's how we lead by uh, our own research. So we invest a lot in our research. We have published already um, on InsurTech, a summary on FinTech now, our uh, higher education research paper is uh, coming out very, very soon. So because the early stage investing is because you don't have business track record to analyze the, the, the financials. Um, so clearly the core of the business, which is the founder quality, the way of thinking, and whether we can work together uh, and how the revenues are started to accrue. So, so, so while we are early stage, uh, we do go in a very measured approach led by our research. So these are our broad thesis on which uh, we operate to uh, look for an opportunity. Now your question on um, how it's impacting in India, especially how the customer uh, behavior is influencing, in these two sectors, Akash, clearly our research has shown and uh, some of our portfolio companies already 
demonstrating that the real opportunities are the core of India, which I would call, you know, I don't know which is tier two, tier three, tier four, mm -hmm. but the real India with technology, with pandemic, I'm sure a lot of your guests would have shared this, uh, how pandemic has changed the behavior of entire India, you know, embracing technology, mobility and all that and vernacular capabilities. Now, the growth is really coming from uh, not the big 12, 20 cities of India. It's the, the population which is embracing technology and mobility, um, you know, the medium like YouTube and WhatsApp. Um, let me take an example of uh, education, right? Uh, when you look at a product uh, adaptation or the customer in tier three town, you know, um, I don't want to offend people by calling any cities the tier three, a smaller town, the parents are willing to spend 3000 rupees more for a month because the kid is now has access to international level quality content, right? So, or if you have to take on the FinTech side on the health insurance, the interiors of India want to understand these, you know, one of our portfolio companies gives a monthly premium health insurance company. So we are getting huge interest and business from those. So the point I'm trying to make is one realization has happened. The, the sectors we operate, the big opportunities are in the real India, where it's, it's going to be a huge scale. Mm -hmm. And the realization is uh, ideas do get replicated. There are many players in the market, but it gives me huge confidence to say the opportunity can digest any number of player at this point in time. It's still very, very uh, early stages. So these are the early stage investors looking at these opportunities. Uh, the global macroeconomic inflationary pressure has as yet has not you know, affected from an investing perspective. But clearly from a uh, customer behavior, the strata from where these people uh, want to consume this product, uh, the product innovation is being influenced by that. It's no more that you create a tech product for coding uh, and you profile people who are in Pune, Mumbai, or in Gurgaon, Delhi, and all those sort of. It goes up to the vernacular level of, you know, how, how can I launch a product with multilingual capability? with both hand-holding uh, enablers, because you know, somewhere the, the, to embrace um, a lending product, you need some freedom street to supplement that technology for an initial stage. So the digital model, which I call both in education, that's emerging in a very, very um, uh, rapid manner. And that sort of consumer behavior is influencing the product evolution within these two space we have seen in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and if you, uh, uh, I think your latter part of the question was, uh, how is the global inflationary pressure influencing the investing in India? Is that the, was your latter question? Yes, especially with respect to EdTech. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, without naming any large tech players, uh, there are news in the market, people do say. But the one thing which I want to bring uh, uh, in on your show is um, there are headline companies in any sector. You would appreciate that, right? When I take mm -hmm. fintech, the recall is of, oh, the, that it, uh, fintech company made an IPO. You know, how was it? Was it to expectation? Or if I take edtech, but the reality is our research shows time and again, these sectors are so diverse, wide and deep, okay? The white spaces are scattered. It's what you pick and choose and prioritize based on your risk and capital, right? So people say like, you know, how it's affecting like EdTech, you, 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 you know, EdTech is, if I have to cut out in verticals, there are at least a dozen vertical within um, EdTech and the enablers horizontal will be at least half a dozen starting from infrastructure to uh, content to overall skilling and, and so on and so forth. Um, EdTech as a sector definitely has become cautious, but 
there's no dearth of ideas or uh, entrepreneurship bringing new ideas into the Indian market. But the early stage company where in, in post probably A series, they would have looked at a global opportunity. They have accelerated their evolution to a global market, especially the, the markets which I talked about is uh, Middle East and rest of Asia and some of the European uh, markets. Uh, so the impact on edtech is uh, definitely more cautious. I won't say it has tightened um, fully, but I see um, and I expect in the next year or so, a lot of Indian grown edtech company prominently coming to a global arena because mm -hmm. the maturity profile is getting accelerated, right? Um, while the backdrop is uh, inflationary, some good news, some bad news, um, uh, a, a case like I will tell you, a lot of people evaluated online school post-pandemic. Can the entire schooling become online, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. the research did show that, yeah, it's 50-50 because uh, your kid needs to have other social skills and all that. Exactly that's what we are seeing. But it's not gone back to the original schooling methodology. Now it's become more hybrid. So quickly, the uh, the product companies, the startups have uh, bringing products which are more supplementary to the conventional curriculum or way of uh, uh, teaching. So while the pressures are coming from uh, globally on this particular sector, the Indian entrepreneurs are accelerating their journey uh, in diversifying their products and globalizing their businesses. So in mm -hmm. summary, that's what uh, you know. I'm figuring out. I would still say it's very, very early days, um, but people have uh, on both sides have become extremely measured and cautious. I, I'm curious about, you know, doubling down on one of the biggest challenges that um, has plagued the Indian tech ecosystem. That is with respect to how aggressive some of these companies have been in terms of their sales models. Now, unfortunately or fortunately, India's edtech revenue model has and by large been heavily subscription-based, which means considerable legwork to sign up a customer and it's often targeted towards middle and low-income families, right? Now, when you send out these overworked, stressed-out sales agents uh, with impossibly high sign-up quotas to fill, you end up often running into a couple of issues and rightly so, you've had a number of publications right from your Ken's to the BBC's to the New York Times who have chronicled investigative reports, which really talk about how these edtech firms have exploited underprivileged families, especially during the pandemic with a host of unsavory behavior, especially when it comes to sales. We've heard all of these sales calls um, and it, it's probably not a great representation of what uh, a VC-backed startup should be and how it's being operated. Um, so what is your take on how aggressive some of these companies have been simply because one, as we previously talked about, these companies raised abundance of capital during the pandemic. Um, if Without, again, naming names here, one company has raised upwards of $6 billion. And now there are aggressive uh, metrics that they're being scrutinized against, and they have to hit these numbers in order for them to justify valuations. Applied to all companies as well, not one of the companies that we're talking about. But for us to actually get to a point where Indian edtech can, one, have sustainable business models, two, not really display this aura that it has in the last uh, few years and not have investigative reports that come about show um, disgruntled, unsavory behavior on the part of these companies. How can we solve this? How can we as VCs ensure that business models are not just sustainable, but more importantly, these are things that companies don't have, or, or, or companies don't really have to get into exploitary behavior to ensure that their numbers are being met. So it really comes down to us. And I take a responsibility myself, especially when I'm looking at certain sectors, when I'm looking at uh, investing into certain companies, it is my responsibility. I mean, I may, I may not be, I may not be a fund manager at this point, but it's still my responsibility to evaluate a sector and say, what if my money goes here? What does this really mean in the context of the larger ecosystem? Now they say this company grows. What does this company really have to do in order for, for it to like one, compete, two, beat its competition and three, more importantly, become a market leader. 
And all of those things is what we have seen within the tech sector in India. And unfortunately, we've had some bad cases that have come about. I'm curious as to what is your take and how are you evaluating business models going forward, given that we've already seen this episode play out in the last two years? It's a great question, uh, Akash, very topical. But let me uh, hedge, uh, put a hedge here that I don't know how factual they are, mm -hmm. uh, how, how intense, um, because you know when it comes in any, any sort of media, the interpretations are varied. Um, I don't know how valid, but having said that, this is a fundamental of uh, business ethics, right? So I will make my comments more broader than just tech because mm -hmm. uh, going back to my point of uh, the world was a bit uh, easy in terms of cash flows to justify the valuation, customer acquisition became uh, a crazy uh, focus, right? Yeah. So the valuation ran on customer uh, acquisition or the number of customer on board versus what the revenue you get and, you know, those three fundamental. So if you look at, there are cases even in FinTech, by the way, in terms of mis-selling and so on and so forth. So probably they are hidden in some small media, but the entire pressure when you raise money to justify the valuation, you need to demonstrate some dimension of the business. Fortunately, you know, in the current situation, that correction is coming. Unfortunately, in the earlier free flow situation, acquisition was for, you should look at the some of the customer acquisition costs. The CAC was absolutely any economics of business will not support that. But people went after that, right? Now, now, clearly in the current situation is a corrector of those. So going back to the fundamental of business ethics, uh, if it has happened, absolutely not. I know there has been some organization, a lot of refunds have come, a lot of complaints have come. Uh, I don't know how true they are. Um, I think as VCs, uh, we have to be very thoughtful, at least for our fund, I can talk about is we are so engaged with the founders, uh, like I said, based on our uh, co-founder approach that we are very, very clear, even in signing up partnerships, what sort of deals, what are the un unwritten terms which are being spoken about and, and so on and so forth. But it's good that this has come into the news people have and the regulators are also taking very clear notice of this. While there is no prescription at this point in time, mm -hmm. uh, the, the alert has been raised. The regulators are absolutely uh, watching. And as VCs, we have a very clear role to play that where the money is utilized. And uh, it's not only how and uh, the approach and what is the flavor, because it's about the next round, right? Next evolution of your portfolio company. If it has some of these not so good experiences with the customer, the fundraising next round is going to be a clear impact because the kind of due diligence, you know it yourself, right? It's not just the financial diligence, but you know the whole intangible what's in the atmosphere is also gauged about and it's going to impact those companies. So the VCs have to be extremely, extremely careful. It's not only where it's being put and how it is being deployed. I think the VCs have to play a more engaged role and we do we are a very small fund we can afford that engageability but the larger fund has to have that compliance oriented uh, approach uh, to any investing and again uh, akash i broaden my comments not only on edtech but largely even in fintech which we are very close to there have been instances of uh, selling of some of the financial products in partnerships uh, which is a very similar it doesn't leave a very good taste uh, as a VC, you know, when you don't notice at the right time and it comes through and when you're trying to raise the next round, and uh, both the portfolio companies and the investors find, if not already, will find it as a challenge because it's a fundamental ethical norms of running a business anywhere in the world. And the customers do take note of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in India, it gets very, very pronounced one bad case can kill hundreds and thousands of potential new cases. Right. So, so 
there is no reason someone should adopt this practice, but unfortunately the pressure on customer acquisition through the sales agent on the, on the ground led to this practice. Obviously going forward, there should be more compliant monitoring of such behaviors. And you so, mentioned this previously, right? Like how the RBI has played a huge role in regulating in one way or the other, the FinTech industry in India. Are you for an organization or the government really coming and stepping in and being a regulator for the edtech industry? Yeah. So Akash, let me step back one very clearly on the sales misbehavior or misselling. Um, you may be aware the collection business in India on the credit cycle, because we are very close. We do evaluate collection companies. Now there is a regulation, you know that, right? So what yeah. you can say while collecting, you could be dealing with a customer who has got 360 days due and defaulted many times, but you can't beyond go. It's an hour prescription. There is a regulation out there for collection, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm up for any regulation which doesn't obstruct growth of business right. in a healthy manner, yeah. right? Now, uh, so like I said, the, 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 the governance should be owned by the entrepreneurs themselves. Mm -hmm. But if there are too many instances of such cases, I'm sure the regulators will take note of it and prescribe something. Um, but I'm pretty neutral uh, to this aspect. I'm open to any regulation, but uh, it's a 1090 rule, right? If you have one exception, let's not put a rule for rest of 99 mm -hmm. or rest of 90. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a big serious issue at this point in time, um, but uh, a regulation to enable businesses is always welcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like the fact that at least there are people in the industry who welcome regulation, but at the same time, it does not or shouldn't hamper the growth of these companies. And that is something that we need to make sure that we could play a helping hand with entities from a government um, point of view, as well as you know, working with private sector and ensuring that there is enough level playing field for everybody while ensuring that there is a corporate governance structure that these guys can know that they're going to be held against when um, things unfortunately go out of hand. Now I want to shift gears a little bit here and come down to one thing that has been on my mind ever since we started talking about and which is the co-founder approach. And you mentioned that a couple of times, which is very specific to your firm and how you take a very hands-on approach in helping founders grow their businesses. I'm curious as to one, how this thesis came into being. And secondly, how easy or difficult is this to actually put into action? Because you end up working with a variety of founders who you know, have different personalities. Some like having that support environment around them while the others are, give me the money, I'm gonna go out and build. Like, I appreciate it but I have my philosophy, the way I look at it, my vision. I'm going to execute against that. How do you then balance it out between these multiple personalities and in some cases, personalities on either end of the spectrum and ensure that one, they want to work with you and at the same time, you're able to help them be successful? Yeah, uh, very pertinent, um, uh, Akash. So I'll tell you as a background, me and Amit, my uh, partner, uh, both coming from a very intense, uh, uh, both a mixture of investing and operating experience. When we evaluate opportunities and meet these founders in two meetings, we figure out, you know, uh, based on uh, intuitive science that the piece of the puzzle missing here is the, the bandwidth to execute or the capability. Because we, we look, everyone says we look for great businesses, you know, now, if, if someone can explain or define what a great business is, for us in Bling, great businesses are, obviously there are great products and all that. The, the founders have got great execution capability. That's what we see as great business because great business takes a lot of time to build. It doesn't become overnight, but through that period of evolution, there are huge amount of challenges and reorientation that needs to be done. And the, 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 the founder becomes very uh, critical the way he thinks and visions how we can get to the goal, right? right? 
So when we look at that uh, and we meet the management team, clearly there are gaps, right? Now, A, we can let those ideas be on the table to say it doesn't fit our uh, approach because the team is not so good, but we like the product or we look for opportunities where it ticks all the boxes. The founders are great, products are great, revenues are coming through, global orientation, fantastic technology. You know, these are all very ideal situation to come through, you know it yourself. So um, that's where it triggered to us that if you have to get early stage, right? We need to see the fundamentals of the business idea and the passion of the, the founder, right? Is he into building a business or to make a quick valuation? You know, lack of word, let me explain that way. So once we figure out this guy has got the right passion, the idea, they want to build it, where we see, that's how we jumped into this. And in our portfolio company, um, we have um, uh, amazing amount of case studies uh, where, uh, we, we feel so good about uh, the way those companies are today because we moved in at the right time to help them and supplement with them. Uh, the, you know, either prioritizing as low as prioritizing the, the capital or the human resources or involving in uh, strategic planning to the next stage of growth or building networks for them to scale their partnership or connecting to the right technologies to architecture the next phase of growth, or even getting involved in recruiting um, some of the CXO level guys, or these days, customer acquisition, a big one, right? So getting into a D2C sort of a, a, a business on um, which channels to use. So we have tested all those and we believe, yes, it is overhead on us, it does take our bandwidth, but it has become, it's not a nice thing to do, a good thing to do. It's absolutely essential to do for mm -hmm. two simple reasons. You are absolutely engaged, which is as a VC, that's the new age VG. The VCs are not anymore financial investors, right? So the founders don't like you if you just put money and call them once in a month to say, hey, how is it going? They hate you, right? Mm -hmm. But today there are a lot of capital, a lot of VCs, the promoters chose you, choose you because what sort of VC you are and what your past track record of engaging with the portfolio company. So the tables have turned over the years. So we have figured out that it is essential absolutely for us to, but yes, the, the extent to which you engage can be moderated and help the organization build. So you don't want to be there all the times, you know, we could be managing that finance function for a month, but we want to hire the finance guy to take on that very, very uh, quickly. So mm -hmm. once we have established that the connection between the promoter group and us is established and the what naturally comes is how should we help them, right? And, and the founders do look for that uh, because um, the capital is, is, is uh, restricted and they have to hire and train people and they don't want to lose time. So mm -hmm. they look for, because in the third meeting, this is, you know, how do you guys can come in and help us? Right. Mm -hmm. So the short answer to your question is it's become more uh, essential than a need or a nice to do, uh, to do this, but as a small fund, we have to stretch ourselves. Uh, we do take calls at midnight, need mm -hmm. be, right? Uh, so the being a VC, it's not a nine to five at all. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how we come up with this co-founder approach because if we have to build our track record, we need to understand the DNA of the company and we need to make them successful in a medium term. Uh, getting into this, uh, like I said, at an arm's length distance, because you don't want to get into the idea space and start messing around because we come with a lot of experience, right? So what has succeeded in the past, I can't just overlay on the new fresh mind and new ideas. So we are very careful, but timely nudge, help, guide, we are always around to uh, do that. That's how we came up with this uh, co-founder approach, which is uh, front ends to our investing business. Mm -hmm. How does that thesis then 
enable you to either work or does it work with other VC funds or does this become really difficult in the sense for the company that you're working with to balance it out? I'm guessing it's the former because it's obviously continuing to work for you. And there are companies that continue to be part of your portfolio. You're obviously actively in, uh, investing in these companies. But the reason I ask this question is because there are a lot of funds out there today, young fund managers who are thinking about their value proposition and how should they really come about adding value, going above and beyond, and really making sure that there are funds that they're, that they're really competing against who have much more capital, who have a way stronger history and track record than they do. But it is that friendly approach. It's about really hand-holding them and taking through that journey that you previously described that really puts you in a better position or at equal power position with some of these other bigger funds that you're competing for some of these deals. But at the same time, how easy or difficult is it for you to compete and work with them? Because I'm guessing that some of the support that you're also offering Maybe some of the bigger funds are able to do it simply because they have enough capital to actually allocate resources towards it. How do you then differentiate yourself with some of these funds with respect to just portfolio support? Yeah. So, so clearly, uh, Akash, it, this is, you know, the, the initial stage of opportunity identification, engagement to due diligence to issuing a term sheet. It's a very critical phase and it is extensive for us. Because that's how you figure out the chemistry, yeah. whether it's going to work, right? You do do ref checks, they do, you know, you, this is the evaluation period could be the shortest could be a month, the longest could be five months, I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, the whole process until you come to a, if you are a lead investor doing a, so you, the, the softer piece of figuring out the, the chemistry and uh, the thought process is very, very important because there are some founders are very clear. You know, I've seen in the last 18 months, probably I would have met uh, more than 100 uh, founding teams. Uh, the characteristics are absolutely different, but everyone is trying to achieve the same goal to be successful entrepreneur to build great businesses, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like you having the different ideology, but with the same goal. Right. Mm -hmm. But you have your own ideology and approach. Will that align or it will confront? That's what you need to figure out in the initial evaluation phase. Yeah. So me and Amit, we spend a lot of time with the founder and the management team because they're appetite to take feedback. That's very important. It's both ways. Right. So they should mm -hmm. get into a comfort space. Right. If we start giving some feedback on the product development or something, hey, guys, you know, we know it, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to respect that. But at the same time, when they are prioritizing the, the resource or they are hiring the not the right kind of people, they should be flexible to, to understand where we are coming from. So the, the, the single word, I would say, you need to figure out the alignment, you know, mm -hmm. where the matchmaking happens. Mm. So it is not easy. Uh, and uh, our approach towards each portfolio company is very different for reason. The characteristics of the founders are different. The stage at which the companies are different. The sectors could be different. Mm -hmm. uh, the customers could be different because end of the day, behaviors are driven from externally, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the culture. So we need to, we stand there aside to moderate that. You know, there are extreme uh, reactions to some of the triggers in the market, which we need to be there being experienced to moderate that, right? Mm -hmm. So so I do agree, it's absolutely not easy uh, to, to figure out the equation with the, the, uh, the founders yeah. uh, is absolutely very critical because otherwise you, you're not gonna be in a good space, right? You are a lead investor, you are on the board and because you know their operating style, where they are going through, you know, you just wait for the board meeting to take a call, you're losing a lot of time. So the engagement factor is absolutely. And Akash, I would again highlight that at an early stage company, this is very critical, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I can afford to be slightly distinted in a more mature VC sort of a, uh, investor. I could look at the MIS, have a monthly review. That's good. But we feel now it has become essential. So if a new fund manager is trying to do this, I think they need to incorporate this 
into their operating model themselves, you know, because it takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, and you need to create the bandwidth, both in evaluation and on a going concern basis. Mm-hmm. Oh, these are some really interesting points that you bring about, especially with respect to building that rapport and establishing alignment. That's the keyword that you use there, which really stood out to me as well, because if you're not aligned with your portfolio companies and your founders, it no matter how much involved or how distant you are as an investor, you just don't feel good about that investment. And it's very hard to justify some of those investments to your LPs and more importantly to yourself as a fund manager as well. So it's really important to work with people. And I guess that's one of the reasons why people always say that in VC, you're investing firstly into the founders and later into the business and the business model because for more of, more, more often than not at the early stage, the business model hasn't really been you know, carved out. It's still in the process of um, you know, getting to a point where the founders are the investors also feel comfortable with, okay, this is a much more robust and complex that it can be a standalone um, entity of its own rather than then saying, okay, the founders are here as somebody who that we want to continue working with. Goes back to, I think before the recording, you and I were talking about working with Japanese um, you know, uh, institutions. That's one of the reasons why they take a lot of time in understanding who they're getting into business with. And I think that is really more important because once you're able to figure out who you're in business with, no matter what the business is, I'm sure you'll figure it out. And that's where the relationship really becomes very important. And uh, it's a key aspect of your fund's uh, thesis and evolution as well, which is which is really interesting. Um, but I also want to extend a question on top of that. What has been your biggest challenge with this model in trying to implement it? And at the same time, in retrospect, looking at some of your existing portfolio founders, what has probably been your biggest challenge? And going forward, how do you take that into consideration while implementing it? Yeah, very topical, uh, Akash. Um, Let me uh, make it simple for you and the the listeners. Uh, It's about people process technology, right? It's a very old saying. You would have heard this two decades, but even today, it's relevant, but the dimension and intensity has changed, right? Mm -hmm. So always, if I have to reflect back on the companies where we had had contentions, right? It's first primary is because the founder groups, they have uh, ambition and uh, propelled by passion, which to say, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's create this, right? So it's always because um, when you are driven by uh, passion, uh, you don't want to lose the opportunity of creating new products and new market, new customer, because someone else will come in there, right? So you're always in that focus of capturing the, the market. And that's where we come in and we see contention there is we say, like, we have a plan, let's execute this to the core, right? Right, so it's, so unless it's fully baked, we are not going to make another one. So, mm-hmm. First fundamental where uh, the the focus areas comes through. Like we will say, we made a plan, let's execute this because you need to make a, and based on that, you start making another one. Obviously things do run parallelly, but the resources, both financial and human are constrained. So you need to prioritize and put it at the right place. That's where some of the contingents come, Mm -hmm. right? So the VCs, uh, the conventional VC approach are always to say that I give you money, you tell me how fast you are burning it, right? So mm-hmm. the burn rate used to be the big, you know, today is just not about burn rate of your funds, but how are you focusing? You know, where's your brain rate? Where is your brain focused on? So first area is that. The second is, do you big contention comes, do I invest today for the future? It's a cash 22, right? So I could be creating a grand Rolls-Royce architecture technology, assuming, unfortunately, the the terrain is changing so dynamically. Do I want to put a few million dollars creating that technology today with all the functionality or you will phase it out, Mm. right? That's clearly the, so the first I spoke about the process, the process of execution. The second comes the technology 
because every business uh, invariably is driven by technology. How much do you invest? How much cool you want to make it, right? Mm -hmm. um, the third is the people. Fundamentally, starting with leadership style to whom you hire, how do you communicate? Um, how do you risk manage uh, succession planning? Uh, how do you read in people, the people bucket? So the contentions do come and it should come in these three broad areas, mm -hmm. right? And we face the same thing. And I'm sure you, you in your chat, you will come across this because uh, even though you have a broad alignment, which way we're going to scale this business, on a monthly, quarterly basis, how do you prioritize and refocus yourself in a market like today? It's absolutely essential, mm. right? So, so people process technology uh, focus and it is not easy, absolutely not easy. It's on conversational, uh, sometimes it's absolutely uh, smooth and you get to a good spot to, carry out. You know, what happens with this approach, the beauty is uh, it's not about I said so, you said this. Uh, combined, when you see we are moving the curve, uh, both parties feel good and that uh, you know, it reinforces the trust. And the next conversation becomes easier actually. Yeah. And we have that flavor and you have to learn through this. And let me tell you, the sectoral focus uh, does influence the internal behavior of the management team, mm. right? So if the sector is intense, uh, there's a new competitor in the market who are short-circuiting the uh, investment cycle, growth cycle, uh, lack of word, uh, you don't get panic, right? So, oh my God, you know, so whatever we decided a year ago, it's all out of the window. So... So you don't have to disrupt your thought process when there is a disruption in the marketplace. So a lot of this gets influenced into what you hear in the market. Um, someone raised big money. Uh, someone has hired a big hitter. This all influences. Mm -hmm. So that's where we need to be um, as a, yeah. a, a back a ventures or wherever to watch this and give them comfort. Oh, happens, we've seen it, don't worry. Let's focus on this. Let's have this again, discussion in 30 days time yeah. anymore. So it's not easy, uh, but yeah. going back, it's absolutely critical. And uh, most of our portfolio founders would testify this approach have worked for them and they will um, definitely, uh, you know, as they, as they mature in the organization, they will continue to seek this sort of support. And when you're also thinking about investing in these founders, how important is it for you that they're coachable outside of personalities and outside of the business model? Does coachability become an increasingly important metric because of the model that your fund has taken? Or is that secondary? Yeah. See, um, Akash, coachability uh, interpretation is very different in every stage of what stage of VC you are or what stage of entrepreneur you are, mm -hmm. right? If I ask you a question, simple Akash, would you do this instead of this? Is it coaching or feedback? I don't know, right? I so, mean, I would consider that as a brainstorming session. Like I would bring my right. thoughts to it and I would, I would add one or two uh, counter arguments maybe if I have, and then we would collectively come to a decision. Perhaps. That's discussion, right? It's right. an open yeah. um, brainstorming uh, discussion. Now, some promoters, you have to follow this. Mm. I can't name some of them. They're very good, very strong on um, their product. They know the market. They've researched it. And when you come and say, then you your style has to be more discussion, collaborative, uh, workshopping, right? Mm -hmm. But some of them are very young and they can go here and there very quickly. You need to just jump in. Hey, mm -hmm. listen, right? So last discussion was this. You need to focus on this. That's, I would call an intense guidance mm -hmm. or coaching, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's the, the, the two end of the spectrum. So you need to 
moderate your style and engagement based on where the entrepreneur is as an individual, as a leader, as an influencer, as a subject matter expert, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I'm not an expert on, you know, on a supply chain technology, how you should be building, right? But from a strategy perspective and prioritization perspective on how people should be organized, probably I may add value where I will be pushing more mm -hmm. to say, while you do this, please look at this, right? So uh, if you have to be very strong to say, I will invest in company where the founder's coachability quotient is high, probably you may not find success all the time. Mm. But if you have a range of coachability to one to or five, say five to 10, so probably you can find to say, oh, I can put this guy at 10 because this guy needs a lot. But the other guy, you know, uh, the style has to be very, very different because there are strong leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So the, so again, different uh, style approach, keeping the goal always in mind and the reprioritization becomes a real discussion. Yeah. Agreed. And I, I want to ask you this one final question before we wrap the episode up. And that is with respect to personalities of founders in your experience and years of investing, have you seen personalities change rightly so as well? And if so, how has that been difficult or easy for you to manage and adapt to given the growth at which the company has been? Oh, um, it's easy to answer. Uh, we have had, uh, hands-on experiences where personalities have changed for better okay and and there's a huge amount of gratification coming from that side mm -hmm. for that day where they are they've gone up to raise bigger rounds it's become going global and and uh, we do have meets right so we always you know when you meet um, in a more lighter environment you always talk about those confrontatious discussion you had a few years ago, but look where we have got to, mm -hmm. right? Now, a case where, uh, 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 you know, the founder is not correcting and the business is off rail, obviously it's a board level thrust which comes. It's not more, any more coaching, guiding, co-founder approach, all that work. So it has to be at the next quarter, meeting with all the uh, stakeholders on the table, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sh shape or ship out sort of a situation. Um, unfortunately, sorry, fortunately, we have not had many of those cases, okay. uh, but that's the only thing is, you know, if you as an investor, you see that it's not deployed and the business is not going in the direction inspired and despite of we giving you inputs, then it is a very hard decision. It's unfortunate. Mm. No, I mean, that, it seemed like that was a very straightforward answer given the nature of um, some of the investments and the growth that some of your portfolio companies have had and the positive impact that they've collectively had along the way, which has given rise to some fantastic opportunities for themselves, so hard for them to carve uh, a very successful path in their uh, you know operating journey. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation for me personally because I've been able to hear more about how VCs can play an active role in the early stage leading up to growth stages because you often hear stories where it's only at the earlier stage where there are number of investors where sometimes it might be really confusing for some of the operators as well to go back and know which one is really a, a value-add investor like hey I'm looking for a potential engineer would you be able to like help me find and uh, I would love to bring you on uh, maybe a year, year and a half to from uh, from now to just to hear about what the progress has been and more importantly, your learnings. Um, maybe as the market settles down in India and you know globally as well, perhaps there is different learning that might have come about with respect to your portfolio founders and from a macroeconomic perspective where we might be as an economy. Really, thank you so much for your time. And I had a ball listening to some of your fantastic insights with respect to both the EdTech industry, FinTech industry, but more importantly, just from a fund manager's perspective, how you're going about building your firm. Thank you so much. I totally enjoyed our conversation. So, uh, Rasha, I'll stay in touch with you. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of our 81st episode. Thank you so much, RK, for being on the podcast and sharing some fantastic insights about 
being a fund manager in India and what it takes to implement a thesis once a fund has arrived at it. The underlying theme here was adaptability and every startup, a founder and the fund managers who invest into these companies need to be open to change and have the instinct to instantly be able to mold themselves to the current climate. And RK was able to share some of his insights both as an operator, an investor and today being a fund manager looking at working very closely with their portfolio companies. And these insights go on to show you that no matter what time of the year it is, no matter how fragile the markets are, it's always important to have an open mind. And most importantly, be open to adapting yourself as quickly as possible to make sure that you end up thriving in that particular ecosystem. Thank you again, RK, for being on the podcast. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. It not only keeps you updated about every episode release, but also lets others discover the show. Well, I'll see you on the other side in a week's time because we have another great guest talking about the Indian macroeconomic climate, not from just a VC lens, but also talk to you about how the public markets are viewing the economy. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and continue to keep hustling.